The carnival does not know footlights, in the sense that it does not acknowledge any distinction between actors and spectators. Carnival is not a spectacle seen by the people. They live in it, and everyone participates because its very idea embraces all the people. While carnival lasts, there is no other life outside it. During carnival time, life is subject only to its laws, that is, the laws of its own freedom. It has a universal spirit. It is a special condition of the entire world, of the world's revival and renewal, in which all take part. Such is the essence of carnival, vividly felt by all of its participants. Welcome to Stage Blather, a weekly podcast offering conversation and analysis about contemporary theatre in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and this is episode six, Carnival. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat. Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far with a tuneless piano and a painted guitar. It's June! Summer is suddenly upon us, and having gone through the endless 256,000 months of darkness, we're suddenly in the midst of uh, blazing sunshine, and everyone's going through that, you know, the usual British tradition of forgetting to wear sun cream and then going outside and crisping. Um, but I was trying to find... So the quote that I read at the beginning was Mikhail Bakhtin uh, from a thing called Rabelais and His World, and I'll talk more about Bakhtin later. Um, and uh, it was, I was, I was going to try and come up with a quote about summer, because I'm quite excited by the notion of summer, because this is my first winter in Edinburgh, and I really feel like I've kind of uh, endured something. Uh, but the only quote that I could think of was from Elvis Costello, uh, which is a song that starts, The sun struggles up another beautiful day, and I felt glad in my own suspicious way, which seemed a bit too cynical uh, for this episode. So I didn't use that. I just thought I'd put it in there. Because we're going to have, I think, probably, hopefully, quite an upbeat episode again. Um... And because the topic this week is carnival, or to be more specific, carnivalesque, uh, and there is a subtle difference. Carnival, um, so to broadly define the, the carnival, carnival is uh, kind of an annual event, um, a big celebration involving a large group of people who get to abandon the normal rules of society for a very brief period of time. And it's a kind of global phenomenon, it happens all over the world. Um, in, it's called different things, obviously. Uh, so carnivalesque is a term that is attributed to a Russian uh, theorist called Mikhail Bakhtin, um, 18, who uh, lived 1895 to 1975, um, and he uses it as a way of describing and defining the kind of behaviour that happens in Carnival, um, the things that are permitted to happen outside of the mainstream within that brief period of um, madness or you know festivity or fun or whatever you want to call it, that the Carnival constitutes. And I should say before I start that I'm not as familiar with this topic as I would like to be, um, and so the analysis might not be as in-depth or as authoritative as I perhaps would like it to be, but I will do my best to give an introduction, um, and I because I think the subject's important, and I think it's very topical, and I really like the fact that I you know get to do a show now that's about something summary. Um, and also, of course, this topic does, I, I think, link in with the previous show that we did on general disobedience. There are some themes and topics that will carry on into this one. Now, I started with that quote from Bakhtin. I, really, I, I quite like it, and I like this notion of, while carnival lasts, there is no life outside it. Um, that within the time of the festival, within the time of the uh, the annual ritual of fun, that everything else kind of goes away for a period of time, and the misbehaviour, or behaviour that is contradictory or that is other to the way we would normally behave becomes the norm, you know, topsy-turvy. The, the king becomes the clown, the clown becomes the king, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it also, I like the fact that it involves a large, uh, this, this assemblage of people. Bakhtin talks about this assemblage of people. And um, 
And for us, and for us by that I mean the British, carnival is something that happens in the summer. And the reason it happens in the summer, obviously, is because of the hot climate in the well, <laughs> we hope, uh, warmer climate, I should say, in the summer. Because in the winter, we, we live in a, a very varied climate in the winter. We can't assemble outside in those kind of large groups of, uh, because it's too cold. And um, what's interesting about that uh, as a phenomenon, kind of warm weather and people assembling outside, is that uh, if you look at riots and uh, protests that, that turn kind of violent, then they will often happen in the summer, um, from you know May 1968 onwards. If you think about the the fact the 2011 riots that happened in August uh, that swept through England, it it was a really 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 hot time, and people are outside a lot. People are um, is that the line from Romeo and Juliet? You know, in these hot days, the mad blood stirring. Things can suddenly spark, and they can uh, in the hot weather things can suddenly take on a new and violent uh, life of their own. And that I think, but that's also you know, outside of the negative stuff, that's also part of the festival, festival and carnival atmosphere that we get in the summer in Britain because we all start going to um, music festivals. Now, and that's kind of really what I'm going to talk about back to you in carnival, but the focus eventually will be on the, the phenomena of music festivals. Now, I'm quite a fan of playing a game which probably exists in a billion different brains, and it's called different things. For me, it's called what would an alien think. And what would an alien think is something that I apply to um, human phenomena, any kind of cultural phenomena, any kind of behavioural phenomena. Um, and it's the idea is, and try and explain this to an alien. So right from you know people committing genocide over whose god is more benevolent, down to um, children dressing up as strange spherical fruit and going and demanding sweets from strangers in complete contravention of the usual you know safety precautions that we instil in children. They go and demand sweets from strangers every October thirty first. And you just, you know, that's two extreme ends of the spectrum. People, you know, genocide and uh, children demanding sweets. And you think, if an alien came down, a being who was completely unfamiliar with human society and human history and human custom and human behaviour, what? how would we explain this to them? How on earth would we try to, 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 to say or to provide a logical answer as to why we act in this way? And I think uh, music festivals are a good case study for this because they're such a strange phenomenon in many ways. Um, you know, we, we sort of... All of a sudden, lots and lots of people get the impulse to go and sit in a, a field for three days, being rained on, where you know, covered in mud, uh, in various states of inebriation or intoxication, listening to music that often they don't particularly care about, or indeed sometimes forgetting to listen to music altogether, and where they spend so much of the year kind of putting up barriers against one another, and you know, the whole notion of personal personal space, and you don't look at people on the tube when you commute, and all that kind of stuff, and then all of a sudden they get together in these massive numbers where they have to communicate with one another, and they eat overpriced food and drink overpriced beer and so on, or they smuggle. And it, but it's such a, a ritualised, formalised type of behaviour that we just kind of take for granted, even though the music festival is not that old in the current incarnation. We think back to you know Woodstock and the, the Golden Age of music festivals in the 60s. It's really a creature of the late 20th century onwards. But it is something that is a, a, an entirely accepted and I think almost indispensable part of our society now, British society in the 21st century. Um, now, uh, I mentioned rituals. I am going to do a show on rituals in the future. Um, but I think for, for now I'll just make one statement, which is that rituals change and evolve over time. And as they do, they, in, their initial purpose can get clouded over. And in fact, their uh, form can mutate. But that doesn't matter to the ritual, because the only the point of a ritual is to create something in the present, to do something now. We think about, you know, the bride and groom getting married. It doesn't matter if you know the history of marriage or not. All that matters is that when the two of them say, I do, and all that kind of stuff, then they become, in the eyes of church or state or whoever, 
um, this unit. And so the ritual, the, the ritual's purpose is only to make meaning in the present. It is not to connect with the past. So it doesn't matter if you go to a music festival and you don't know about the festivals and the carnivals of the medieval period, which I'm about to talk about. All that matters is that you engage in that kind of behaviour now. But I think that the music festival is not a creature purely of the 20th century. I think that it is um, a new form of something that is actually very old, that we've been doing for centuries. And that is, and this is where I get to Mikhail Bakhtin, and the things that we've been doing for centuries are these uh, carnivals, these uh, which Bakhtin locates in medieval Europe of feudal societies and uh, warring kingdoms and so on, where for a brief period of time every year they would have these strange um, events where they would crown a king and queen of fools, where people would be permitted to openly mock the aristocracy, where God would change, where um, the state would change, and this was something that was actively not just maintained, but um, in some ways even promoted by the very state that was being mocked. So, um, uh, where was I? God, I've already forgotten. All right, okay, so let's, yeah, let's... Um, Go into to uh, sorry, my apologies. It gets summer brain, you know. The sun comes out, and I spent too long outside. I myself have gone crisp. And right, I'm going to go into a quote from Bakhtin. Um, this is Bakhtin talking about uh, the kind of origins of festival and uh, the the carnival. He says carnival festivities and the comic spectacles and ritual connected with them had an important place in the life of medieval man. Beside carnivals proper, with their long and complex pageants and processions, there was a feast of fools and the feast of the ass. There was the special free Easter laughter consecrated by tradition. Moreover, nearly every church feast had its comic folk aspect, which was also traditionally recognised. Such, for instance, were the parish feasts, usually marked by fairs and very open-air uh, amusements, with the participation of giants and dwarfs and monsters and trained animals. A carnival atmosphere reigned on days when mysteries were produced. This atmosphere also pervaded such agricultural feasts as the harvesting of, harvesting of grapes, which was celebrated also in the city. Civil and social ceremonies and rituals took on a comic aspect as clowns and fools, constant participants in these festivals, mimicked serious rituals such as the tribute rendered to the victors of tournaments, the transfer of feudal rights, or the initiation of a knight. Minor occasions were also marked by comic protocol, as for instance the election of a king and queen to preside at a banquet for laughter's sake. These occasions built a second world and a second life outside of officialdom, a world in which all medieval people participated more or less, in which they lived during a given time of the year. If we fail to take into consideration this two-world condition, neither medieval cultural consciousness nor the culture of the Renaissance can be understood. To ignore or underestimate the laughing people of the Middle Ages also distorts the picture of European culture's historic development. And so there was a lot in there, I'm sorry, it was a very long quote, but I really like the way that he writes, and I like... I like the kind of enthusiasm and vigour that he gives to his subject. Um, and he, what he's talking about here is the notion of the carnival as a necessary other, or a shadow, to the seriousness and the sanctity of the religious rituals and the courtly rituals and the social hierarchies of the medieval and later Renaissance period. So you would have these very, very serious things, you know, the crowning of knights and so on, the, the uh, initiation of knights or the crowning of kings or um, Easter and so on. But all of them would have their comic counterparts, and those comic counterparts would work in tandem with the serious rituals to, in some ways, kind of undermine the seriousness of the occasions. It's almost like a pressure valve. Okay, so, and the idea is, you know, as the people you say, right, you want us to be good subjects, to bow and to scrape and to serve you and so on, fine. But we need our bursts of irreverence. We need our time to take the piss out of you. And it's peculiar, right, for for an autocratic society then to then turn around and say, yeah, okay, fine, you provided your good service, we'll give you this brief period of time where you can take the piss out of us. 
Um, because you'd think the last thing that they would want to do was to permit the satirising of the very structures that keep them in power. Because subjects always outnumber those above them. And the things that keep the few ruling over the many are usually a combination of fear and admiration. You know, don't step out of line or this will happen to you. And by the way, we are in power because we're better at this than you are. Or we were born into it. Or, uh, you know, therefore we know how to do it. Or we've been anointed by God. Whatever. If you, but if you start openly mocking and ridiculing those above you, then you start to taint the image of superiority that they have created. You start to make them look like fallible, weak and ridiculous human beings. Exactly the same as everyone else. And then, surely, you start to get people's minds ticking over. Why are these people in power? You know, if they're just as ridiculous as me. At least that's the mentality that, you know, the most authoritarian people in the 21st century seem to have adopted. This is why, let's not forget, Donald Trump hates the fact that John Oliver keeps talking about taking the piss out of his tiny hands. And he, he felt motivated at one point to, I think on international broadcast, he said, my hands are not small. If my hands were small, then something else would be small, and I can assure you that that's not small. So he felt necessary to defend the size of his penis because John Oliver was taking the piss out of the size of his hands. Sorry, I should have said trigger warnings. There's some fruity language in this show. None of it's swearing yet. At all. Well, um, But, you know, other ones. You've got militant Islam shuts down uh, comedy and satire of any kind. Uh, North Korea, uh, the, the, you know, they've closed down any kind of artistic expression that is not sanctioned by the state. One of my favourite examples of the, of the of kind of uh, state coming down hard on satire is uh, Putin, who created his own satire. In 2003, he had a team of lawyers um, prepare a lawsuit against Warner Brothers because uh, he thought that the character of Dobby in the Harry Potter films had been based on him. Which was wonderful, because apparently the Russian lawyers then did uh, prepare this case. I don't think it ever came to court. I don't know who the hell they'd take it to, The Hague? And uh, which is also worth looking up, is one of the best results of that, was that CBBC, the children's television programme of the BBC, they put a, a poll online asking their viewers whether or not Vladimir Putin looked like Dobby. And bless them, the um, the very informed six-year-olds who watched the, the CBBC and also surf the internet uh, voted, and apparently fifty-four percent of them thought that he did. So you know, maybe maybe there's something in it. But um, so yeah, you know, autodidacts and, and megalomaniacs and people who are ex exceptionally powerful really don't tend to like being satirized. But yet the autodidacts and the theocrats and the you know the the tyrants of the medieval world, and this was a world where they took tyranny seriously. Yeah, this was a world where you could be tortured to death for saying the wrong thing, for being in the wrong place, for not paying the proper respects to whichever deity or duke happened to cross your path. So, you know, these are pretty hardcore megalomaniacs. Not only did they uh, not shut down this kind of mockery, but they formalised it into the traditions of their society. Which, to us, I think seems a bit mental. But this is where Bakhtin gets interesting, because Bakhtin... I mean, I said, you know, uh, he lived late 19th century to late 20th century. This is a guy who goes through some of the most extreme political climates probably in all of history. You know, he sees the Russian Revolution. He sees the Romanovs get shot. He sees the new political idealism from Marx and Engels be implemented to huge and murderous effect by Lenin. He sees, you know, Trotsky gets death by ice pick. He sees Stalin um, coming in. And even before Hitler's invaded and 25 million Russians and Ukrainians and people from the Baltic states have been driven to their death in hails of machine gun bullets, uh, there's been famines and purges that have killed millions of people even before that all begins. Um, Bakhtin, in fact, you know, there's a story about Bakhtin that uh, he was, when the Germans were invading uh, Russia, that uh, cigarette papers were really hard to come by. And so he'd written this book on the Bildungsroman, Romans, I think, um, and he, it hadn't been published or anything, and he just started ripping up his book and using it as cigarette papers. So this is a guy that lives in pretty bleak times. Um, but he spends his time wondering about carnivals, the carnivals of the medieval ages. 
He did, I should probably point out, he did write about a lot of other things too. Um, it's just that this is the thing I'm interested in for this particular show. Uh, and the book that he's, um, that I'm talking, I've taken these quotes from is a book called Rabelais and His World. Uh, I was thinking about this. I'll, I'll try and post a link to the Facebook page uh, at the end when I get this show up. And I will start doing that with the other episodes too. I'm also going to speak slower. I've just realised I've been rattling through, <laughs> through my ideas quite quickly. And yeah, anyway, uh, I hope this is comprehensible. Anyway, so what Bakhtin comes to believe over the course of his studies is that even though what he calls official feasts, you know, the standard religious rituals and the royal ceremonies and so on, even though they rejected laughter and frivolity, nevertheless, there were always unofficial feasts that attached to pretty much every single one of those that, maintained, that were maintained and publicly performed and permitted. And um, he sees in this something that is quite positive, which is what he calls a wholeness of being in the world. This is my final quote from that book. He says uh, that in the medieval period, the people do not exclude themselves from the wholeness of the world. They too are incomplete. They also die and are revived and renewed. This is one of the essential differences of the people's festive laughter from the pure satire of modern times. The satirist whose laughter is negative places himself above the object of his mockery. He is opposed to it. The wholeness of the world's comic aspect is destroyed, and that which appears comic becomes a private reaction. The people's ambivalent laughter, on the other hand, expresses the point of view of the whole world. He who is laughing also belongs to it. Which is kind of gorgeous, I think. You know, this notion that, that in order to be able to be a part of the world, you need to be a part of its ridiculousness and its absurdities and its stupidities, and you cannot therefore afford to put yourself above that world. Um... It's in. I mean, I'll try not to get too far into this, but it's worth pointing out here that Bakhtin is actually somebody that was quite influential in uh, develop in the development of post-structuralist thought, because post-structuralist thought is something that says absolutely that you cannot put yourself aside from, or above, or apart from the thing that you are uh, analyzing and critiquing, because you yourself are part of whatever it is that you are studying, and you bring yourself to that object of study just as it comes to you. And what he's saying about when he compares satire in the 20th century to satire, and yeah, no, it would have been 20th century by that point, to satire in uh, the medieval period, is that he thinks satire in the 20th century is this kind of disengaged, disenfranchised, um, somehow dislocated perspective where people stand above something and mock it. Whereas in the medieval period, even though, and it, it should be remembered, even though this was a society of extraordinary. Um, social hierarchy to the point at which your movement was restricted based upon your station in the world. Of course, we still have that, as I mentioned in a previous episode. You know, politics of space still exists, but it was a much more, I think, um, manifest and formalized uh, restriction of movement in the medieval period than it is now. That may be a tendentious statement, and I'm sure if somebody wants to argue with me, by all means, please do argue with me. I'd love that. Um, and there is also, of course, a bigger question with Bakhtin, which I'm not really going to be able to answer here. Uh, and it's, it's bothered me for a while. And it's to do with the political potential of Carnival. Because Carnival, according to Bakhtin, seems to operate as a kind of release valve or uh, a way of, and therefore a way of maintaining the status quo. You know, um, that all the laughter and all the frivolity if it just acts as a counterpoint to the oppressiveness of everyday life, then does it not just reinforce everyday life? I want to subject you, fine. And you say, okay, but, you know, one week of the year, then you've got to let me get drunk and sing rude songs about you. And I say, fine. Is that really giving us much to work with? 
Or, or does the carnival function like a drug, you know, what Marx would have called an opiate of the masses, something that offers temporary deferral of a problem but does nothing to help find a solution? So, you know, um, you're being oppressed, you're being uh, mistreated, you're indentured into servitude, you can't move around, you've got no money, and a few people are living in luxury. Um, but just think of carnival, you know, think of the one week of the year where you get to pretend that everything's fine and you're actually enjoying yourself and so on. And I'm not sure that I've ever found an answer in Bakhtin um, about whether or not Carnival can offer a potential for change. It struck me, I mean, again, like I said, I'm not uh, an expert on Bakhtin. I haven't read that much of him. We used to teach some uh, bits and pieces of this uh, on a course that I taught at the University of Nottingham. And I've, I'd come across him before that uh, the undergraduate course at the University of York. And he's somebody that's um, kind of come back at various points in my life, um, who I at one point will go and read properly. But for me, I've never really got this sense that he was able to find a revolutionary potential in Carnival. And maybe, maybe that's not the point of Carnival. Maybe it's not supposed to present a revolutionary alternative. Although I feel that if it can create a world that is different to the world that we are living in, a world in which people feel free and happy to participate, a world that is based on laughter, then why not try to extend that world outwards and to make it more a part of everyday life? That surely cannot be a bad thing. I'll come back to that at the end of this. Um, but with all this in mind, then, I want to talk a bit more about um, music festivals, which I mentioned at the beginning, because I think that, well, as I said, although they haven't been around for very long, they pick up a lot of what Bakhtin talks about in terms of carnivalesque behaviour. Uh, I should say, for the you know purpose of disclosure, I have not been going to festivals for very long, um, and I haven't been to that many. My first proper big festival was, was Sonar in Barcelona when I was about 25, and since then I've been to a few um, sort of notable examples being Boom, which is a side-trance festival in Portugal, uh, Gucha, which was a, a Serbian trumpet festival, um, I went to something called Beat Herder last year, which was an electronic music festival in Leeds, and I've signed up for something called the Anarcho Folk Festival in Inverness this summer, just because it's called the Anarcho Folk Festival, and surely it should be everybody's um, responsibility to go to something like that once in their life before they die. Um, and uh, there, of course there's other things like the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and so on. And uh, the one I want to talk about is the one I went to two days ago called Meadows Fest. And Meadows Fest is a two-day local music and well, it's kind of a cross between a music festival and like a village fete where people come and uh, there's lots of political uh, stalls with um, oh, petitions and so on. And uh, there are various charitable organisations. There was something, the um, fire service. There, were, there was a series of stalls, that, that, that wonderful thing that, I don't know if it's like a, a global phenomenon or if it's just British, where people just sell rubbish. And you look at them and you think not only... How, what, why, why are you trying to sell that? But also, why do you own that? And then finally, who made that? This kind of, you know, misshapen candelabra that doesn't ever hold any kind of candle. And it's just like, what? Um, but yeah, so as I mentioned, I think festivals are a kind of uh, a descendant of, of the medieval carnival because they're, and they're exciting. You know, people put a lot of effort into the costume, into face paint. If the organisers are good, there'll be plenty of decoration and spectacle. There'll be food stalls selling overpriced stuff. Uh, the festival the other day, there was a, a food stall selling chips for four pounds. And then there was another one, um, like about 20 feet away, selling them for two pounds. Very peculiar. Um, and you get a release at festivals, I think. It would be different, and imagine trying to explain that to an alien. Imagine trying to explain the, the, the reason that you go to these things and the feeling that you get from being at a festival, even though it's, it can be quite uncomfortable, even though it can be often you know, quite irritating, the volume of music or the conversations and so on, but you do feel something at festivals which is quite unique. And, um, you know, you, 
Dis- despite the fact that you can't explain to an alien why you go and sit under a flimsy bit of canvas in the field in, in, in the rain, covered in mud and so on, uh, not sleep, you eat badly, you make questionable decisions, the fact that it is so hard to describe is probably one of the best things about it. Festival feeling trumps everyday logic. It's like, you know, because festival. My experience at the Meadows Fest was unusual in that I only went for a day and I took my two-year-old son. And this obviously restricted certain forms of behaviour, but it did open up others. I spent a lot more time playing with sand and trying to build weird constructions to fire balls down than I generally would have done. Uh, We also spent a fair amount of time dancing. We went to a a tent that was sponsored by the Forest Cafe, um, and there was a particular highlight. It was a local band called Tongue Trap, who were a kind of uh, girl punk band in the slight... They sounded a bit like a cross between Blondie and Republica. Um, Then they oscillated between too cool to care about anything um, with... I hate you so much I want you to kick kick you to death. Um, and it, that kind of music always reminds me of the film 10 Things I Hate About You. And I also wanted to mention that uh, they are affiliated with an organisation called Girls Rock School, which is on London Road in Edinburgh. I don't know much about them. I, I heard about them for the first time the other day. They're a uh, organisation that is designed to try to encourage women to get involved in rock music. And I understand that they have various workshops and lessons and so on. They have a website and I think they're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, they're also trans-friendly. Uh, they sound brilliant, so if anyone's listening to this who uh, happens to be a woman or you know trans um, and is in Edinburgh and wants to get involved in rock music, or know someone who is, please pass that on. Girls Rock School, uh, London Road, Edinburgh. Um, my son thought it was brilliant, which was funny. It wasn't the first festival we'd taken him to, or I'd taken him to. My ex and I took him to a, a comedy festival when he was about six months old. We took him to see Tim Minchin. He fell asleep for most of it. But this one, he was very much awake and dancing his head off in that kind of stompy way that toddlers like to dance, which I think is dancing. Um... And uh, what was also quite lovely was that, uh, in terms of collective collective behaviour, is that when you take toddlers out into the world, you quickly learn two things. You learn to be apologetic, sorry, sorry, my child has just spat into your handbag, kind of thing, and enraged. What do you mean you're not taken in by his innate brilliance and cuteness? You should be grateful that he spat into your handbag. And it's quite exhausting trying to maintain the two at the same time. But at this festival, no one batted an eyelid at any handbag spitting. Uh, in fact, he ended up stealing somebody's tennis ball and the person didn't seem to care. Um, and everyone was incredibly good with him, which was really relaxing. And that's what got me into thinking about uh, behaviour and about the way in which festival behaviour can be something positive and something that maybe could extend beyond festivals. And, uh, yeah. and this gets us back to Bakhtin. Um, because what I was pondering as I left this festival was... Why does this kind of thing have to be restricted to such short, self-contained events? I mean, you know, in some cases, uh, particularly uh, pharmacologically, I suppose, then, yes, some of the kind of behaviour that are indulged at festivals would potentially be quite harmful if they were practised in perpetuity. Fine. But there is something more intangible about the ways in which we inhabit space, about the ways in which we interact with one another and, and, and ourselves, and the ways in which we think about time that seems so beneficial at festivals that it doesn't make any sense that we wouldn't pursue that beyond the few days that we set, you know, we sit in these muddy fields. I don't have an answer to this, of course. Um, I'm going to a slight swerve towards the end of the show, and this, uh, I was reading this morning about uh, there are more people in mainstream politics who are pushing the idea of a universal general income. I think that's what it, uh, the thing is, and the idea of the universal general income is this um, economic notion that rather than distribute benefits on a means-tested scale, you just give everybody uh, a small amount of money and they don't need to, you know, they, who, regardless of what they earn, regardless of what their physical abilities are or so on, uh, and it's enough for those who really need it to be able to give them a boost to live on and for everybody else it can be savings or they can spend it on holidays or whatever. Now, 
I am not an economist. I am not. Uh, this is not a political uh, podcast. I'm sure my own politics do scream quite loudly, much more than I would want them to. But what was interesting to me is that whenever I come across this idea, one of the arguments in its favour is that it is well, people who have people who believe that this is a good idea say that it will help to reduce competitiveness and anxiety in the way that we live. And that's something I'm interested in. I think um, I, I'd like to end with a question. Um, I don't think it's a question that I'll be able to answer, or I don't think it's a question that we'll be able to answer in our lifetimes, because I am actually quite pessimistic. But I would love to be proven wrong. And the question is, if we did manage to reduce competitiveness and anxiety, and I'm not saying that we'd do it by the universal general income, maybe we would, or if we found some other way of doing it, but if we managed to reduce competitiveness and anxiety in our everyday lives and became happier and more contented as a result, then how might that change the way that we feel about festivals um, or about the carnivalesque? If we were happier, generally, would we need festivals as much as we need them now? And if that's the case, are the festivals and is the current excitement about festivals a general symptom of our unhappiness in other aspects of our lives? Or if we were happier and more content, would would that fuel an increase in festivals themselves and in the kinds of behaviour that we exhibit uh, at the moment only when we're at festivals? So would it make festivals more widespread? And I know, obviously, the kind of answer, the answer that I would prefer, but I thought I'd just leave on that, that note. Um, right, and we've reached the end of the show, so uh, thank you for listening. I'm sorry that this episode took so long to come out, because um, this was because it's been insanely couple, a busy couple of weeks. Um, because we've essentially gone over into next week now, there will not be an episode this coming Friday, uh, but I'll do one for the following week, and then uh, normal weekly service will resume. As ever, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please, please uh, either, you know, like us on iTunes, I think you can do that, or share on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, um, uh, and tell people about it. Uh, if, you are, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please check out State of the Theory, a far more erudite and informed show than I would ever be able to produce, uh, which can be found on iTunes. They also have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed. They are called State of the Theory. Uh, the song is One More Brook Poet by uh, Polly Edwards whose website, website is uh, brookpoet.com. And thanks to Kuldeep Panasar for producing this uh, episode. Now, go forth, enjoy the sun. I'm told that in Scotland, at least, this is like the only week of sunshine that we'll get for the entire year, but I don't believe that for a second. Have brilliant days. So fly when you're back and go dream of the seas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks. Do have a price they can't pay